No more commercials. All right. We are moving into <clears throat> Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. <clears throat> Leon Morris, in his commentary on Romans, said this paragraph, verses 21 to 26, is possibly the most important paragraph ever written. In this small commentary on Romans that I use rather frequently, the author <clears throat> was asked if you could take just six verses out of the Bible and all the rest of it take, be taken away, which six verses would you choose? And he said, these, verses 21 to 26. All of the gospel is here and in a way found nowhere else in the Word of God. It is extremely deep, <clears throat> extremely wide, and by my estimation, according to the study that I was working on, it's going to take me two weeks to get through it. Uh, there's just no other way around this. There's so much here. But as our um, uh, habit is for the class, what I'd like to do is read together verses 21 to 26, which is your first paragraph in the handout, and read it out loud together so at least we have an idea of what we're dealing with. <clears throat> but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, right away, you're getting a concept of how deep this is. For example, how many times is the word righteousness used? It's in verse 21, 22, 25, and 26. Four times. How many times is the word justify used? Now, not in, it actually goes beyond these past verse 26, but in this section you have in verse 24, verse 26, verse 28, and verse 30. The word faith, verse 22, 25, 26, 27, 28, 30, and 31, and 11 more times in chapter 4. So right away, you start realizing we have some pretty big ideas that are talked about just in these few verses. Righteousness. 
justification. The glory of God. Faith. Grace. Redemption. Sin. And the $50 word of the day, propitiation. Which, by the way, is not a Greek word or an English word. It's a Latin word. I went into my library, which is a rather ridiculous library of books, and if I were to pull off all of the separate books dealing with each one of these topics, the stack would be this tall. So as I began preparing for this particular class, I had written down these words and I sat back and looked at my you know, at my uh, list and went, gee, thanks. <laughs> you guys are going, sure, go right ahead. It's really easy. I could spend an entire hour on each word. I've done entire classes on just the glory of God. I've, I've lectured on a variety of these things over, over time, and it's overwhelming to try to sit here and realize what is encapsulated in these small words that are so huge and so large. I had the privilege 20 some odd years ago to edit this particular book called The God Who Justifies by James White. Now, he actually lives here in town. He's a, a teaching elder at a church out in Mesa now. He used to be in Northwest Phoenix. Um, but here you have a 380-page book on justification only. The middle section of the book is 80 pages that is an exegetical commentary on the Greek New Testament of Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 8, verse by verse. So yeah. I felt smart while I was reading it 20 years ago. Do I remember what I edited? No. Um, it, it is a massive topic. What I'd like to do is to try to at least, as a group, for us to explore some of the words that are here, some of the depth that's here, and maybe point you to your own study. You, <clears throat> to your own uh, increased understanding of the depth of what's here. Lisa said something to me last night. She said, the problem for you, Steve, is that you know how deep this goes. And so consequently, trying to walk into a room and in, you know, 55 minutes, say, yeah, let's all figure it out. You can't. Some of these teachers, like a James White, have spent their entire lives debating this, preaching it, teaching it, writing about it. The great Puritans, you know, John Owens and Thomas Watson and others, would, would fill volumes 
on this topic alone. So, with that in mind, let's start looking. Before you even start reading verse 21 of chapter 3, you have to think about what we've dealt with from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. The theme of those words are, you are hopelessly dead in sin. You're all bad people. All of you. No matter who you are. Jew, Greek, believers, you are all without excuse. It's not until you get to this section that you find hope and an answer to it all. Because he has done an enormously powerful presentation of the fallen nature of humanity and its sinfulness and the need for some sort of restoration with God. But then he provides that. That's why verse 21 starts with the words, but now. Anytime you see the phrase, but now, in Paul's writing, it's good because he's now going to give you the solution to what he has presented as being the problem. And right away, he dives into the phrase, the righteousness of God. Not the righteousness of man. You know, if it's the righteousness of man, if we could theoretically set up a system that was absolutely perfect, and theoretically we could. Theoretically it's been written about. In fact, Marx and Lenin have an idea of what would be the perfect society. Has it ever worked in practice? Of course not, because it's being run by fallen leaders. But theoretically, you know, you can create a utopia. It's also called science fiction. You know, it's, it can't really truly happen because mankind is completely fallen. And this is what's so frustrating, I think, for all of us in this room. When we watch the cacophony of the world's answers and we just sit back going, are you guys listening to yourselves? You don't even agree with each other on how liberal it should be or how deviant it should be. The more deviant, the better. And someone says, whoa, hold on. There needs to be, ah, you can't say there can't be any morals. Uh, oh, oh, I'm sorry I ever brought it up. And then you have all this chaos around us. But when you compare that to the righteousness of God, this, well, let me ask this question. What's the definition of this word? Especially since we're starting with it in verse 1, or verse 21 of our passage today. When we say the righteousness of God, what does this word mean? Not this one, not justification. What does righteousness mean? Holiness. That's an aspect of it, 
but it would not be a definition of righteousness, necessarily. I mean, it does have in there, built into it, the word right. But what it, when you, you know, it's not like, you know, when we were in high school and we'd go, ooh, righteous. That isn't what they mean. And it's not the righteous brothers who sang songs. <laughs> but what does it mean to be righteous or the righteousness of God? What is that? Having right standing before God. Having right standing before God. That's a good definition. What you want to add to that? That would be not the righteousness of God. I would say that would be a righteousness of man. Would you maybe agree with that? I, I, I can see both. Okay. But I, I'm from God's perspective. I'm from God's perspective. Yeah. Perfect in every. Perfect in every way, which kind of dovetails with the idea of holiness. Did you have a? I thought. Oh, you were just flipping your hair. Okay. Um, Hey, whenever she signals, I gotta say, I gotta go. What? Anyway, <clears throat> there is a legal connotation in the word righteousness, and often you will find in Paul's writings he almost sets it up like a courtroom setting. So, someone who is righteous is declared, not made but declared not guilty. They are no longer wrong. They are declared right. A right standing before God, as you mentioned. And he says this righteousness of God has been manifested. Uh, you know, well, propitiation is the $50 word. Manifested is the $20 word. What does that mean? Well, Greek word means to shine or to appear or to light up like a rising sun. In the New American Standard Bible, they translated this as declared. So that the righteousness of God has been declared or presented which is an interesting way of putting it but that I, I know what they're trying to do in that translation they're trying to underscore the meaning of righteousness but the word manifest it doesn't mean declared it's a shade of meaning meaning you've presented it made it uh, available or made it known but what's interesting about this is that this means it's public Everyone can see this. And everyone can see it apart from the law. And by the way, this manifested word, fanaru, <clears throat> is a perfect tense, meaning it's been completed in the past and still has an effect today. So it's something that's been perfected but has an ongoing um, meaning. In other words, it still is. So it's interesting, if you look over in Romans 1.17, it says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And you're going, well, if it's been revealed, how is that different of being manifested? Because the word revealed 
is is a um, is not a perfect tense. It's being revealed. So some of the commentators who are trying to figure out all of the nuances of the Greek language, being revealed, the righteousness of God is being revealed when we proclaim it, when we present it into the world. When you're at one of your shows and you're talking about the gospel, you are revealing the gospel to those who are hearing it. But in verse 21, he's saying this righteousness was manifested in Christ Jesus a long time ago and is now still here and still, it's not a separate of being happening this moment, but it's something that happened in the past. That's their difference. Anyway. So that's a sense of time. Right, right. And at one time, it was made available and perfected in Christ Jesus. So that's why he has a word like this here. But it's apart from the law. We've talked about this before, um, and this is one thing about Romans. I, I was, again, I was pontificating on this to a friend the other day, and I said, the pr problem with Romans is that it's very repetitive, in a sense. He takes an idea, but then he comes at it 17 different ways, all coming to the same point, ultimately. And uh, I think of Francis Schaeffer as an author back in the day when he was very popular. He was kind of frustrating to read because he would write something, make a statement, you go, uh-huh. And then he would say the same thing, but in a different way with the same conclusion. And then he would do it again. And you're going, I got it the first two times. Why are you hammering this? Uh, oh, he's a teacher. Students often don't get it the first time. They might have a sense of familiarity the second time. And by the third, third time, they go, ah, now I get it. And think of who he's writing to. He's writing to the church in Rome establishing this doctrine, this idea, the concept of the gospel of God. What is it? And you might think, well, wow, either they were dense people or he's been struggling in teaching this over and over again. And now he's just sitting down. I think Lisa, you mentioned the other day, he probably just, he's, it's just pouring out of him as he's writing this. And yeah, he's crafting it, but it's coming out of someone who has taught this so many times, we figure at least 20 years now, he's been teaching this. It's just pouring out of him. And here we are 2,000 years later going, huh, I never thought of it quite that way. <laughs> and Paul, actually the Lord is up there going, uh-huh, that's why I had Paul write it so that you could figure it out too. So he says this righteousness of God, this right standing or this uh, idea of being declared not guilty 
the power of God is being shown or manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So he isn't saying the law has no power. In fact, didn't he just say in verse 20, for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The point of the law is to show us how sinful we are. Example. Let's be this really practical here. I think we talked about it briefly last night, or last week. So if you blow through a stop sign and the police t- pull you over and are about to present you with a ticket and you say, I didn't see the sign. Are you not guilty? Well, of course not. You broke the law. The law was there to prevent you from blowing through that intersection because it would be unsafe. It's there for a reason. The law is there to show us if you break this law, you know you broke the law. Don't say, oh, I didn't see it. Well, maybe you didn't. It's because you were distracted. You were texting when you blew through that sign. I mean, just it was weird the other day, traveling down 15th Avenue, and the guy in front of me was weaving. And I could see the glow of his cell phone in front of him as he's just kind of doing this. But next to me was a Waymo driverless auto car. Some guy's sitting there, but he's probably doing this. And it's... It doesn't deviate, it wasn't going anywhere, it's exactly the speed limit. I'm going, is there something to this? Because this other guy's gonna kill somebody. But I don't know if I wanna turn over all of our cars to a robot who, what, what was it, where it was it, Europe, where a whole bunch of the drivers, hmm? Wasn't it San Francisco? San Francisco, a whole bunch of the, the uh, driverless cars suddenly went to the same parking lot and parked. <laughs> and they're going, what just happened? Because there was like 50 of them just all, mm. <laughs> Okay, you know, somebody must have had, had a little bit of fun in the home office with that programming nightmare. Anyway, apart from the law, but the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Even Isaiah 53, verse 6, okay, a famous passage. As soon as I read it, you'll recognize it. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The idea of sin is on us all. There's no question about it. So, it says, verse 22, again, the righteousness of God, which we have defined... Okay, I'll just read it as a full sentence here. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Well, what does that mean? Imagine you're not you. Imagine you're someone who is new to this whole concept. 
of Christianity and even religion. And a statement like that is tossed at you. And you go, the righteousness of God, well, what does that mean? Well, I, I see the word right in there with God. But faith? What is faith? Now, next week I'm going to dive into the concept of faith in a, a much deeper perspective. But because it's here, we need to look at it. It's one of our key words from this passage. If you don't understand what faith is, this passage doesn't make any sense. Even Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 says, By grace you are saved through faith, not of your own doing, it's a gift of God. Okay. And faith is used seven times in this section of Scripture. In ten verses, it's used seven times. Obviously, it's a good word. It's an important word. Before I ask you to define it, let's talk about what it's not. Faith is not a blind faith, meaning you believe in something that you know is not possible or not correct. It's just wrong. It would be like, um, I have faith that I can fly when I jump off this cliff. Go right ahead and save the gene pool from your future because, you know, we have the Darwin Awards, uh, idiotic human beings that kill themselves doing really dumb things to save the gene pool for the rest of the humanity. Um, they're obviously doing it in a form of a joke, but there's this idea of when you know it's not true, you shouldn't or you can't truly have faith in it. That's a blind faith. Secondly, Faith is not a belief in yourself. That you just got to have enough faith. How often have we heard that phrase? And unfortunately, we believers tend to invoke it on each other. And we're trying to do it in a form of an encouragement. You know, that you need to believe. Believe that God will take care of you, but there are factions within the church that will actually make it a formula. So I suppose there's a uh, some sort of canister out there called faith, and if it's full enough, it'll suddenly, everything will work out. Uh, going all the way back to my bookstore days, I still remember this one one young lady that came in the store and she was distraught. She'd come into the store looking for a book to help her, but she was, you could just tell, she was disturbed. And not a mental illness disturbed, she was just disturbed, she was unhappy. And as customers in a Christian bookstore want to do, they share their entire life story with you uh, because you're safe. You know, I'm an anonymous person. And she was sharing how her church was telling her that her chronic illness was because of her sin in her life. And that she needed to remove the sin from her life and have enough faith to overcome it. 
And she just looked at me with tears in her eyes saying, I have prayed until my knees bleed and I'm still sick. So obviously there's something wrong with me. So this church is telling her that faith is up to you. It's something if you pull up your own bootstraps, which I always think is an odd phrase. I mean, it can't be bootstraps plural because you can't pull up both at the same time. You can't pull yourself off the ground. It's impossible. Anyway, but that idea of we just grit our teeth and just, it'll, it'll all work out. That's not what faith in the Bible is defined as. Thirdly, faith is not something you can earn. There are those that, again, feel that if you do enough right things and do enough good things, that you are a good person. It probably means you're a good person, but doesn't mean you are going to heaven. That's not faith. So it's not a blind faith, it's not believing in yourself, it's not something you can earn. So as one teacher put it, faith has to start with one thing, and that's admitting you can't do it alone. You cannot do it by yourself. He used it, his name is Mark Strauss, and he used an interesting um, word picture. I'm not sure it works perfectly, but it's close enough for this conversation. Say you've decided to go hiking in one of the canyons in Arizona and you fall off the cliff, but there's a little ledge about eight feet down that you land on and you, know, you sprained your ankle, but you have absolutely no way of getting back up. You're now hot, dehydrated, in pain, unable to do anything but shout. Finally, someone comes to the edge of the cliff and throws a rope over the side. And if you say to the person, I don't need you. I'm fine where I am. I will just believe that I will be rescued. Okay, that's the idea that you can do it yourself. The only way that you can be saved in that metaphor is if you admit that you are helpless and put the rope around your waist and pull it up. He said the problem is when you get back to the top most people will shout hooray I saved myself. And he goes that isn't faith. They are not admitting that they were helpless and were brought up by another because that would be admitting their weakness anyway so this idea of faith in Jesus Christ it's not a faith in God I need to be careful here as I phrase this because God is Jesus Christ but if all you have is a belief in God and not a belief in Jesus Christ as the saving vehicle of our salvation, it's not Christianity. It's faith in deity. So you're a deist, not a believer in Christ. It's, a, it's, it's an important distinction because many religions 
point to God. Maybe not the Hebrew God, maybe not the God of Christianity, but they point to an almighty being, maybe under a different name. Krishna, Buddha, Allah. It has a name, but that is the same thing. Also, in the Greek, there is a very subtle little twist in this verse. In our ESV, it reads, faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, it's very clear. The problem is the word in is not in the Greek. The Greek language actually reads, pistis, faith, eusis, Christos. Faith, Jesus Christ. Which has led some commentators and some pastors to change this translation to read the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. You see that subtle difference? In other words, they're saying that Jesus Christ was faithful in doing the work that he was asked to do by the Father. Now, in and of itself, that may be kind of theologically correct. The problem is, remember, this word faith is used 18 times from chapter 3, verse 21, through the end of chapter 4. And nowhere else is it rendered that way. Just in this one spot. So, just any time, if you happen to run across that, and that's one of the advantages of a Bible study like this, we can talk about these things because it's really detailed, but I ran across it and was like, what? Well, that's an interesting twist. I'm not sure I agree with that twist because it changes the meaning of the verse. It changes the meaning of this passage. It's kind of giving, you know, adulation to Jesus Christ in the middle of a passage that's talking about the necessity of believing in Jesus himself. Okay. So, who is this for? Well, it's for all. For all who believe, so there's no distinction, for all have sinned. Same word, all and all, in these two verses. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, we know that verse. It's a common verse, very well-known verse. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We, we quote it frequently. But think of how this paragraph doesn't that verse actually feel a little out of place? Because he hasn't talked about sin in this paragraph, except right here. And it's almost as if this verse belongs up under, say, verse 19 or 20, where he's had this litany of sinfulness you know, he's saying that, you know, you're without excuse. And then he talks about 
all these are under sin in verse 9. And then he just has this litany of no one is righteous. All have turned aside. Their throat's an open grave. Their mouth are full of curses. Their feet are swift to shed blood. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You would think that would be a culmination or a grand conclusion to his words. But it's here and you have to ask why. Why is it here in this paragraph and not earlier in the chapter? I think it's here to nail down the next verse. Grace. Because if you don't understand sin, you cannot understand grace. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and His word is not in us. That's 1 John 1.10. I was talking to one of my uh, author clients yesterday. Actually, Thursday. Yes, Thursday. Yeah, today's Sunday. Yeah, I've lost a day somewhere. Um, and she told an interesting story, and I suspect some of you have run into this similar issue in your your your, your discussions with people. But she had been teaching many years ago. She was teaching on the Book of Job, and. You know, there was a group of people, and there was one lady who was there every week for the first month, and then suddenly stopped coming. And, oh, that's odd, but she wasn't the leader of the class, kind of like here, I'm the teacher, and Philip's the leader of the class. And she didn't reach out to that individual. But then after a third month when she wasn't there, she finally called her up and said, hey, you know, let's call her Sally. Sally, um, notice she hasn't been in the class. She goes, oh, I just can't stand the way you're teaching Job. Well, what am I doing wrong? Well, I just don't believe that a God would sick Satan on someone like that. I can't believe in a God like that. That a God that would be that vindictive and that mean and to cause so much suffering in someone who was faithful to him. I can't believe in a God like that. She said, so we had this interesting back and forth and I'm realizing I can't change this woman's mind because she's made up her mind. And then I chimed in, no, she has made a God in her own image. One that she is comfortable living with not with the God of the Bible. She goes, that's exactly right. And she said, unfortunately, I saw that woman become more and more bitter in her life, in her relationships, and in her interaction with other people. And she eventually passed away a very unhappy woman. And I thought, isn't that what we see out here? Because right now, you know, we have the Rovers Wade and all these other things in our politics and, you know, the uh, collapse of moral society. 
And if you come out and say, that's wrong, that is incorrect behavior, someone will turn to you and go, who are you to judge? Well, it's not me that's doing the judging. I'm going off the word of God. Well, I don't believe that. Well, now we have a problem. Because <laughs> that's what I base everything on. It's on the word of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it isn't said here. It's said many other places. And the penalty for that sin, wages of sin is death. And punishment the wrath of God is embedded in the very fabric of this idea of righteousness and justification. If you take the wrath of God out of this equation, then he's just a good old boy who pats you on the back. Man calls sin an accident. God calls sin an abomination. Man calls it a blunder. God calls it a blindness. Man calls it a defect. God calls it a disease. Man calls it a chance. God calls it a choice. Man calls it an error. God calls it enmity. Where you become an enemy of him. Man calls it fascination. God calls it fatality. Man calls it an infirmity. God calls it iniquity. Man calls it luxury. God calls it leprosy. Man calls it liberty. God calls it lawlessness. Man calls it a trifle. God calls it a tragedy. Man calls it a mistake and God calls it madness. Man calls it weakness, and God calls it willfulness. That's from William Newell's commentary on Romans. The contrast of how the unbeliever defines sin is so diametrically opposed how God defines it. And if you can't call sin, sin, then the idea of all have sinned, who cares? It's not a big deal. You make your own way in life. You define your own morality. Or as a guy told me once, as long as I'm not hurting anybody, I can do whatever I want. I said, define hurt. What does that mean? So verse 24, as one guy put it, this verse has it all wrapped up in one short half sentence. Justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The three axioms here. You have gift, you have grace, and you have redeemed. Now it's interesting, the phrase grace as a gift, the word gift, is the Greek word Dorian, D-O-R-E-A-N, not DeLorean. Dorian, 
That was for your sake. Uh, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but Dorian means without a price. That's why you will see some translations translate this as they are justified freely by his grace. So you have this translation use the word gift. Others will use the word free. It means the same thing. But what was so fun is that today's passage that Pastor Jim taught from has the word Dorian in it. It was part of my study, and I decided, ah, I don't want to go there. That would be a, you know, a rabbit trail in the classical. Why did you, you know, turn us over to Matthew chapter 10? Well, he did it first. So I'm going to take you to the passage he taught on this morning in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8. It says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive Dorian free. It's a gift, and you give without pay, freely. It's that same idea. This idea of grace as being a gift, goodness, we, we can go all the way to the last, literally the last chapter of the entire Bible. Revelation 22, verse 17, has the word Dorian in it. The Spirit and the Bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. It's free. It's a gift. Freely given. You almost have to just <clears throat> kind of stop there for a minute. And just try to grasp what is being said here to be justified now we're going to define justified because it's the first time the word has come up in our passage is different from righteousness they are very similar words oh my goodness they're similar words in Greek D-I D-I-K a-I-O-S-U-N-E. Dikaiosune. Justification. D-I-K-A-I-O-O. Very similar words. In other words, they have the same root. To be made right. To be Declared right, I guess, would be a more appropriate thing. As James White puts it in his book, The God Who Justifies, this word should bring to mind the gracious act of God the Father through the perfect work of Jesus Christ, whereby I have been pardoned and made right before God. Without understanding justification, you can't understand grace. Because grace means I, you know, we, we like to think of the grace of God. Grace, you know, God is just so nice and sweet and puts his arm around us and say, I believe in you. No, it 
doesn't do that. Grace is the pardon for the sin. It is a free gift. He just gives it to us. It's not something, remember, faith is not something you can do. It's not an act or it's not enough coins that you put into the vending machine so that God gives you justification. No, it is this free gift, this extraordinary, deep, wonderful truth. Alva J. McLean puts it this way. He's off of something I've been saying already. He said, This means that God is pronounced righteous, which is exactly what justify means. To pronounce someone righteous and to treat him as such. Remember that definition. Justify means to pronounce and treat as righteous. It's vastly more than being pardoned. It's a thousand times more than forgiveness. You can do me wrong and then come to me and I may say, I forgive you, but I have not justified you. I can't. But when God justifies someone, God says, I pronounce you righteous. And from this day forward, I'm going to treat you as if you have never committed a sin at all. Justification means sin is all past and gone, wiped out not merely forgiven, not merely pardoned. It means cleaning the slate and setting the sinner before God as a righteous man, as if he has never sinned and as if he were as righteous as the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That is grace. Because here's the thing about it. If I am guilty of sin, and I am, I stand here before you as a sinner, I am still guilty, even if I've been pardoned, even if I've been forgiven. But now, because of Jesus Christ, when when God looks at me, He doesn't see my sin. It's gone. It's been wiped out forever. Therefore, the condemnation for that sin is no longer in effect. I am not condemned anymore because of that. So this is where the depth of the idea of justification and being made righteous, or I should say being declared righteous, because I'm still a sinner. I still have a sin nature, but God does no, no longer has me bear the weight of that sin in judgment. The wrath of God does not fall on me because of the grace 
that has been given through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Outside of Jesus Christ, there is no redemption. That's in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 to 14. Isn't it? I mean, I could just expound on this for a while and you'd all go, yeah, well, we get that. I'm going, but do we really get it? Do we really think about it? Does it really resonate and rattle around in our brains? I have a feeling, like I do, I take it for granted. Yeah, I understood that once, and yeah, I took a class on it once, or I heard a sermon once, and was like, oh, okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's, that's really neat. But seriously, this is a big deal. These just, we're not, we're, goodness, we're going to have to stop because we're only in verse 24. Um, um, and it carries on from here. I mean, this is, we haven't even gotten to the grand conclusion that Paul's coming to, which is kind of fun, gives me something to talk about next week. Um, and I've already pre-studied it, yay! Uh, <laughs> I wish I could convey, I wish each of us could convey this to every one of our friends, our, our fellow Christians, our fellow believers, and say, let's just for a moment rattle around inside these verses and think about it that the wrath of God God cannot abide sin he can't be in even the same remote room with it it is so vile and because he loves us he wants us to not have to deal with it. So he put his son in its place. And then he says, and by the way, you're welcome. It's free. You don't have to pay me money for it. You don't have to grit your teeth and pray really hard. Just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and God's love pours out so if anyone says you can't deal with the wrath of God they don't really have a concept of what that means because he provided his own answer for his own wrath let's pray Lord thank you for our time together to do our best to try to grasp some of the depth that you have given to us here in your word and to think, think about it for a, a moment in time but to come back to it over and over and over again and fall to our knees in thankfulness and in praise and in worship for giving us the chance of a life in Christ in Jesus' name, amen.